Hello and welcome to a brand new season of the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. And if you haven't listened before, then it's great to have you along. All back episodes of the podcast are free to listen to on our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com or through your podcast app of choice. The small Devon town of Biddeford is not especially remarkable. Sitting on the banks of the River Torridge, it was for many years a thriving mercantile port. The old Long Bridge spanning the river is unusual for the fact that its arches all have spans of different widths. Folklore tells us that this is because each of the town's guilds paid a different sum of money towards its construction, and the wider the arch, the more generous they were. But there is no evidence in the historical record to support this. More likely is the suggestion that natural footings in the riverbed were used for ease of construction. It was also said that the bridge should have been built further upstream, but, as is his wont, the devil had other ideas and kept moving the stones. The same reason being applied to so many hilltop churches in the county would seem to suggest that Lucifer could find little else to do whenever he came to the area. Where Biddeford is notable for us as folklorists, however, is in its being home to the last three women to be hanged in England for witchcraft. Temperance Lloyd, Mary Trembles and Susanna Edwards were tried and convicted in 1692, despite much of the evidence against them being nothing more than hearsay. Temperance Lloyd was accused by shopkeeper Thomas Eastchurch and charged with the suspicion of having used witchcraft on the body of Grace Thomas, as well as discoursing with the devil. Grace Thomas thought Lloyd responsible for bewitching her because she had expressed pleasure in seeing that Grace had recovered her health the previous year. Mary Trembles and Susanna Edwards were the cause for investigation because a local woman had blamed Trembles for her illness. Edwards had been little more than her begging partner. All three women lived in poverty at the time of a country-wide food shortage. A new study on the case has recently been published by Bloomsbury and is authored by historian Dr John Callow visiting lecturer in history at the University of Suffolk. He spoke recently with Hilary Wilson, book reviewer for the Folklore Podcast, about the case. She started by asking John what exactly drew him to examine the case of the Biddeford witches. Well, it challenges everything maybe we think about witches and witchcraft, certainly in a British and maybe even in a North American perspective as well, because it comes really late. It's not the stuff of of the Middle Ages. It's in the the age when the Enlightenment is really knocking at the door. So you're looking at 1682, the reign of King Charles II. It's urban rather than rural. And it's in a setting that is cosmopolitan and is outwardly wealthy. Affluence is coming into the port through the trade with the new world. So you've got all these interesting new things happening and a society that has completely exploded 
under these charges of witchcraft coming as progressive hammer blows over the summer of that year. So it's it's ripe territory for a researcher and a writer. Yeah, it certainly is. Could you tell us a little bit about the case itself for those who don't know anything about it? As with all witchcraft cases, Biddeford starts small. It starts in neighbourhood accusations, things going wrong, neighbours sickening, taking to their beds, the appearance of strange animals. And at the centre of it all, we have the, the lives of three poor women. They're significant in the context of English history and the history of witchcraft because they were the last three to be hanged for the charge of witchcraft in England. They come very late in the trial, trial records. So we have Temperance Lloyd, Susanna Edwards and Mary Trembles. All of them are single women. They're unfortunate. They're elderly, although not quite so elderly as the trial judges thought, but they're united by their poverty and their friendlessness in a society that really doesn't want to have a lot to do with them. So in your research, you showed that Susanna Edwards and Mary Trembles knew each other. Um, mm-hmm. They might not have been friends, but they, at the very least, relied upon each other you know, to some degree. Do you think that the charges against you know, Temperance Lloyd and the accusations were as harsh as they were because she didn't have another person to rely on you know, the way that Susanna Edwards and Mary Trembles, at least to some degree, did? I think all of the women are on their own. I think none of them would have been brought to trial and certainly not executed if one single person had stood by them over that summer of 1682. That's the essence, the rub of the tragedy we're looking at. They are different. Um, What you find, because the poor law books do survive to some extent in Biddeford, we've got the John Andrew Dole book, which does list the indigent poor in the town. And you can see very clearly, and from the town record books as well, that the women tended to beg together in little groups, twos and threes. Now, it doesn't take two minutes of thought to think, to work out for yourself why this was a good idea, just in the sense of assault, blows, unkind words or rape. So women are particularly vulnerable. So banding together as some kind of ad hoc sisterhood makes good sense. All three women would have known each other. Biddeford is a, is a small community. Mm-hmm. The, the problem is it's a bit of a pressure cooker geographically. It's out on a spur of land. It's connected by a toll bridge that you needed money to cross. So there's no real way for them to escape anywhere else to. And that's one of the reasons I think that the, the witch trial and the witch accusations have such ferocity, because it's an enclosed society geographically. It's up there on a hill that the witches were supposed to have lived on so that they could spy down into the town, onto the port. It's a busy, bustling place. But those, those ways of getting out and seeing the world by water transport, by ships to Ireland, to Chester, to North Wales, or even to North America, just aren't there for the women. So they would have known each other. They would have known each other by sight. We know from the Dole books that they queued up together Mm -hmm. in the same line, that they were admitted to get their pennies uh, from the Dole together at certain times. The one, uh, the the year, 
the Christmas before they were tried. They're all in the same room at the same time. However, as you rightly say, Susanna and Mary do seem to, well, did beg together, did go around together. And that's why when we talk about the three women as if they're a unit, it can be very misleading where authors, novelists, playwrights, radio uh, plays have tried to revisit the story. They see the witches as a unit when in actual fact, you're dead right. There was temperance on her own and the other two women with a ready economic friendship. Temperance, though, as the... uh, as the trial literature suggests, is always seen as the main one. She's the dominant personality, the arch witch, as she's styled. So she comes down to us far more clearly than the other two, and they are very different personalities. So Temperance is an immigrant. She comes in, as far as we can tell, from South Wales. Her husband, whom she marries in Biddeford, is a coal miner, The coal scene, though, is all worked out by the time of the Restoration, the 1660s, and the husband vanishes, leaving her to fall back upon charity from 1664 onwards. She has kids. We don't know what happened to them. Presumably, they abandon her too. So she has just under 20 years of being on the parish. So she's a familiar figure whose poverty is deep and endemic. Susanna Edwards had the farthest to fall. She's the kind of, almost the kind of odd one out. She comes from a pretty rough, bad background. She's illegitimate, which isn't the greatest start in a Puritan town for anybody. But she marries well. She has the family. And then things begin to go wrong. Plagues, epidemics strike. She loses some of her kids. Her husband dies. So she, too, is forced back on the parish. She seems to, some of her kids survive, but they again seem to have distanced themselves from her. So she falls the furthest. She was somebody who was outwardly respectable, as probably actually Temperance Lloyd was within the wider dissenting Puritan community at the time of the Civil War just afterwards. But they move into the margins. That's a terrible, biting thing that poverty does. You're shunned by your former friends. You don't know any kind of comfort. And it's a remorseless, grinding poverty that I think people today have trouble thinking about, that it's it's abject poverty. It's permanently being hungry. It's permanently being cold. And this is what I think drags these women down. Mary Trembles is on her own not through any kind of choice, but by the fact that her parents, who again were immigrants, possibly from the north of Ireland into Biddeford, had died. They were, they were beggars, they were paupers all their lives, and they arrive as part of the shifting indigent population of poor that is the sort of, if you like, the underbelly of the town. She never marries, unlike the other two women, and she's just generally unfortunate. She's just one of those poor souls that doesn't fit in, doesn't have a voice, even in her rendezvous with the gallows, even in her last hours. She's the one of the women who goes absolutely to pieces, has to be strapped on the back of a horse even to get her to the to the gallows tree. So we're talking about a story of, of degradation, of want, of privation, 
And that manages to mutate and find its expression through accusation and counter-accusation of witchcraft. You mentioned in the book that um, they were even so incredibly poor and you know, presumably elderly that they wouldn't even be put on the ships to go work in America. Yes, I mean, that was that was one option. We're thinking, I think it's important for an, maybe an American audience, also for a British audience to think about, that slavery as it was known in the 1680s is very different to what it was 20 or 30 years later within the context of the British, well, the Atlantic archipelagos, that what it means to people in Biddeford, Biddeford thankfully isn't a slaving port, it's, it's, it's fallen from prominence, Bristol has overtaken it by the time that the British slave trade kicks in. So what was going on, although there is the start of an English slave trade through the Duke of York, the future King James II, who's in charge of the African company and its border governors, and who at this time is shifting the remit of the African company from what it was originally, which was to look for gold and ivory uh, along the Gambia, they can't find either of those things in quantities to make it work. And they begin to pick up from the Duke of Courland, whose main property was up in the Baltics, or Lithuania, uh, his, his access to the slave trade. So that's the, that's the kernel of, of British involvement with that particularly distasteful um, manifestation, I guess, of early capitalism. But what Biddeford had was... The, the fear of the Turkish slave trade, of merchants being swept upon by the, uh, the corsairs coming out of Algiers. So that's British and Irish folk being taken to North Africa as slaves. And then the deportations from Britain of its poor, of criminals, to work in the plantations in North America. Now, Quite clear, you know, sometimes as indentured servants, you do your seven years and then you'd be released to, to go on the farm if you if you live that long. Now, obviously, the women are so elderly that they wouldn't be any use for working the plantations. So even this is denied to them. They wouldn't have survived the, uh, the voyage across the Atlantic in all probability anyway. And from what we know about them, that their infirmity meant that the best they could do was scavenge, scavenge for, for wood, for, for kindling, for fires that they could try and sell, for windblown apples, for tobacco and little scraps of meat and leather that had been spilled over onto the wards of Biddeford. So they really are at the margins in every conceivable way. And it's them being at the margins, you know, them being as you know, poor as they were that you know, made them ripe for the accusations. Yes, I think I think it did. I think it's easier. Well, I think going back to the sort of the great studies, I'm thinking of I'm thinking of McFarlane here and his studies of witchcraft written in the in the early 1970s about Essex and the outbreak there and the home counties that there is this sense continually within English witchcraft and, and sometimes in continental witchcraft too, that um, Briggs wrote an amazing book called Witches as Neighbours, which is one of the real standards, I think, in, in witchcraft historiography. There is this sense that 
accusations arise from neighbourhood disputes and from the refusal of charity. Now, the way charity is given is altering very dramatically in this period and for the generation before, really. With the Reformation, the, the institutions, namely the monasteries and the religious orders, had always supervised giving charity. The idea of Christian works in wider society, how did you get into heaven? Well, in the pre-Reformation church, a big part of getting into heaven is giving to the poor. With Martin Luther and his successors, this doesn't matter. Salvation is by faith alone, full stop. So charitable giving suddenly doesn't get the rich into heaven. So there is less onus on them actually to stick their hands in their pockets. The monasteries have gone, doles aren't coming from there. So welfare is effectively privatised. It becomes more ad hoc. It becomes more random. It doesn't go away but it's not seen in quite the same way. So there are large numbers of poor. The dislocations of the Elizabethan period have, have created their own shockwaves, putting people on the road, out of work. There are all kinds of new laws that come in against beggars and begging and people coming from out of town. There's the introduction of a poor law, which by any means would be seen as, as fairly draconian. And the poor are quite clearly looked down upon in a way that they probably weren't before the onset of, of a proto-capitalist society. They are swept under the margins, they've got less to offer. And I think that shift in Christian thinking away from, you know, Jesus's idea that the, the poor and the meek are his constituency. Well, that's not felt on the streets of Biddeford by the 1680s, and that's why, in part, the women really do suffer. They suffer on a number of levels. If we think about beggars today, whose numbers, unfortunately, are certainly in the UK, rising very dramatically over the course of the last 10 years, and our own interaction and our own everyday lives with them. I think it's natural for us to feel an element of guilt when we pass somebody in the street. After all, we can't give to everybody who stretches out a hand or calls after us. It's just absolutely impossible with those numbers. So we feel guilty. And I think the same thing was operating in Biddeford in the 1680s. Now, if you add to that, when charity is refused, very often the person sat on the street will mutter something after you if you don't quite hear what that is if you don't quite work out what it is other than maybe it's slightly aggressive that thought can can embed itself like a little bit of a worm in your ear and can begin to grow this is one of the problems that happens with the Biddeford witches that the curse could be effective one of your armories as a beggar, after all, is threat. You can either be completely passive, uh, completely deferential, or you can be a bit more strident, you know, money for menaces, effectively. And this is what catches, in particular, Temperance Lloyd out. She tries both strategies. She tries to be deferential when she meets Grace Thomas, a, a single woman who'd taken sick in the street, but she overdoes it and scares the woman. And then when she tries to threaten and cajole, all it really does 
is give her a reputation as being a witch, somebody who can curse, somebody who can raise storms, somebody who can curdle the cream or sicken the child in its cradle. So it's a pretty dramatic, um, wow, it's a pretty dramatic state of affairs. And to go back to the analogy with the modern day beggar, the difficulty is that once you believe in folklore and magic, those curses really do have the power to harm. So when things begin to go wrong in your everyday life, your kids sicken, your animals begin to die, you can see a way in which they could associate the misfortune with the curses uttered on the street corner and begin to build on that. And it's also, I think, that thing of turning guilt for the refusal of charity on its head and projecting the guilt, the fear, the disgust onto the person in need rather than dealing with it yourself. And then there was the added, you know, part that Temperance Lloyd, she took that, you know, accusation to a certain extent and internalized it. That, you know, witchcraft could be a form of having, you know, at least a modicum of power in the eyes of others. Well, I think that's always the thing with witchcraft and, and magic. They they give people who otherwise have absolutely no access to, to power, whether that's physical or whether that's in terms of political power or social power or power over neighbours and your own relations. And it kind of it kind of magnifies it. If you don't have strength, if you don't have charm, then a recourse to magic can maybe get you somewhere. And I think temperance does internalise this. It's very clear on the scaffold when she seems to be speaking for herself in a less mediated fashion than she was allowed in the courtrooms to do, that she doesn't give the confession that is expected of her, that she will admit that she had harsh words with the mother of a child and that the child died afterwards. She will admit that she gave the evil eye to people she didn't like and bad stuff began to happen to them. But she won't admit to raising storms. She doesn't really admit to being in league with the devil in a, in a very straightforward way. The devil isn't prominent in her confession. And she certainly says she didn't cause a young lad to fall out of crow's nest of a, of a ship and kill himself. These were things that were absolutely impossible and beyond her power. She knew nothing about them. So it's all shades of grey. It's nuance. And there is the thing, give a dog a bad name and they'll live up to it. And I think there's also that, that she had a reputation for being a witch for a good decade before she's actually brought to trial in 1682. And this had grown. And eventually, I think she began to sort of to, to lean upon it to get what she wanted. If it was the difference between going hungry or having a relatively full stomach, getting a little bit of tobacco, a bit of meat, a bit of grain to bake in the bakehouse, then it was well worth it. And I think this is some way to explaining how she came to be defined as a witch and how she came, in some respects, to self-define as a witch. Yeah, she definitely seemed to self-define to, you know, as you said, a certain extent. Um, and, you know, I found it fascinating how the pamphlets, you know, took what was done and 
began to alter it, you know, more mm. and more as, you know, time went on to the point that, you know, by the time that the ballots were coming out, it was, you know, quite the different story. Yes. Well, I think, you know, witchcraft then as now sells, but there was a ready market for witchcraft pamphlets, trial accounts, salacious stuff. And also, as you say, quite rightly, the, the ballad literature that goes along. So they get themselves immortalized, um, you know, in a new ballad that came out to the tune of Fortune My Foe. And Fortune My Foe is a tune that is used for about a century before to suggest eerie, creepy, malignant things to do with witchcraft and that tune is appropriated and settled with a new set of words that really talk up the demonic aspects of what they were doing it doesn't matter by that stage what they did they become the stuff of a, of a popular song and there's always this thing in witch trials and witch accounts that the authorities and the intelligentsia are trying to make random discordant troubling stuff fit particular intellectual patterns and guidelines. Demonology, even though we might not think of it in those terms today, is seen as a science, as a, as a branch of theology, something you had to know about it. That's why King James VI gets interested in it, that it's something no person of learning could do without, because after all, your big authorities upon which society, Western Christendom, rests upon at that period, are the Bible um, and the the works of classical authors. And what do the Bible and some classical authors have in common? They um, trumpet the existence, the reality of witchcraft, because of Leviticus, King Saul going out and meet, meeting the witch of Endor, Moses having the deal with Pharaoh's magicians, turning their staves into serpents, all kinds of things like that. So you've got a culture that is attuned to witchcraft in a way that we are not today. Do you think that, you know, some of the, you know, things that came out during the confessions that were shocking, you know, to the populace, you know, came about due to the background of the witches or the accused witches, you know, as immigrants? So, so for instance, you know, Temperance Lloyd, you know, coming from um, South Wales, you know, where her family likely came from, mm. would have had a different, you know, set of folk belief, you know, to the people of the town that she now resided in. Possibly. I don't, it would, it would be, it would be very easy and it would be a stunningly topical argument to make, I think, at the moment, if the witch trials arose in Biddeford simply through the fact of their difference through ethnicity mm -hmm. within the British Isles. I don't think that's all of it. It may have added an edge. I think we're far safer, actually, to think of it possibly as a conflict within the town's own pre-existing Welsh community. At, after all, some of the accusers have Welsh surnames as well as the accused. Susanna Edwards may have married into a settled family of Welsh extraction. It's possible. Temperance Lloyd certainly was a first generation arrival into the town with all the problems that that created. Certainly the, the record keepers 
of a parish had trouble recording Welsh names in the parish register. So there's a certain cultural rub there. It's entirely possible, the point you make about folk belief, accepting Susanna, who is Biddeford born and bred, that temperance may have had an overlay when it came to familiar spirits from a Welsh context that wouldn't be seen as quite so damaging as they were in England. After all, the Welsh did not, like the Irish, did not persecute witches in the way that the English and the Scots did. They're absent from their trial records, thankfully. So it's a good point that there possibly is that overlay of folklore coming from a from a Celtic culture that Temperance Lloyd had. It's not we don't know, we can't say it for sure, but certainly familiar spirits are one of the factors that drive the Biddeford cases along. So it's a good point. And it's that fun thing, I think, with with cases of witchcraft, so far as they can be fun, that it's anybody's guess. You know, you and your listeners can have an interpretation that will be as right and as valid as mine, provided it's based on, on you know, the, the archival evidence, where you can speculate these things. So I think it's actually an excellent point. There is that, there is that cultural rub along the borderlines in which cases very often, whether it's the borderlands between France and Germany, Comte France, where some of the worst cases happened in the 16th century, whether it's the Basque territories where there were terrible persecutions, or whether it's in, as in Biddeford, um, a hinterland where all these ideas are cross-fertilising. So not only are you drawing folklore from Ireland and from Wales, but you've got it, it runs in almost a sort of solipsism or creation, creative tension because, because of the port, you've got the stuff coming in and out to North America and the colonies. Somebody in Biddeford would have far more in common with an individual in Dublin or an individual uh, down the Chesapeake River than they might have in, in Plymouth or certainly in rural Devon and Cornwall because it was actually the sea lanes um, and, and navigation by ship that was the lifeblood of those communities. The roads in that part of England were absolutely atrocious in that period. So it was easier to get goods and people shifted from very long distances by sea than it actually was over land. It was one of the things that I was wondering about as I was reading it, you know, because the folk belief in you know, Wales is as unique as it is. Mm-hmm. You know, to put that into a place that is more primed to believe any kind of potential spirit contact would be the work of demons, you know, as opposed to being fairies. And those sorts of interactions would be, you know, primarily demoniacal. It, it just struck me as a kind of interesting, you know, thing to consider with it. Well, exactly. I mean, we've got we've got the case of the familiars in Biddeford. We have, as you say, Temperance Lloyd, who might have had the idea of fairy belief. Certainly when she talks about meeting what becomes transformed in the, in the, in, over the course of the, the trial records into the idea of a, an apparition of a demon who 
gambles and canters around her when she's going up Gunstone Lane, sort of doing cartwheels, this sort of toad-like creature with great big saucer eyes. That does sound awfully like a, a sort of fairy apparition and, and less like a demon. So there's always that tension with the elites trying to form folk belief and, and the disjuncture between the elites and the people who had lived pretty much cheek by jowl. So folk belief was not uncommon, I would suggest, to the woman or the man of early 16th century England. By the mid to late 17th century, what the people are up to, what they're doing, what they're thinking, what they're believing, their customs, their practices, their, their beliefs, are separated from the elites by a widening gulf. And that makes these things against the background of the disruption of civil war or the breakdown of order sometimes seem really quite threatening. So, yes, there is the possibility that the, the fairy beliefs common to the Celtic fringe were adapted and had a theory of demonology put on top of them. And on top of that, the, the idea of the witch's familiar is something that England and Scotland really lead the way on. And Biddeford is full of them, whether it's the magpie that comes tapping to the window, whether it's the, the feral cat that strays into a shop with a rag doll in its mouth, whether it's even, you know, they even manage to have demonic pigs. Now, Biddeford is, is overrun by pigs who manage to escape because of all the, the offal and the muck and the, the bits of foodstuffs left on the quayside. And I think what is more important is that the women themselves, through their practices of begging, going down to the quayside, looking for the great casks of food and tobacco that have overturned and spilled and broken, and gathering up the little bits and pieces, are actually mirroring the actions of wild animals whether it's feral cats, whether it's the rooting pigs, whether it's the, the, um, the rather sinister carrion-eating magpie, they're, they're linked. They're in the same places. They're doing the same stuff. So it doesn't take much imagination to see that the actions and the activities could be projected onto the other. And if you believe in familiar spirits, the idea that one of the things that you get when you sign the demonic pact with, with the devil is a helper or a series of helpers who are demonic spirits who can take on animal form, who suckle at the, the teat that appears once we've conducted the pact, you get a far more sinister picture emerging. And of course, once you have this idea that the witch is bodily transformed by contact with demons or the devil, then they are literally dehumanized the witch has not only given up his or her, because there are male witches as well, immortal soul, but they have actually become non-human. They've gone through already a magical process that has transformed them into something that is non or even subhuman. And as we all know, once you dehumanize somebody, it's all the easier to hurt and to persecute them. Uh, one of the things that you know struck me with that line of thought is you know, just how, just how weak the animals that are thought of as familiars are. You know, the only real 
like predatory and threatening one would be the cat, you know, but like a magpie, you know, a hedgehog, a hare, you know, these are animals that, you know, could be on some level threatening, but not like a wolf or a bear or you know, something no. much more powerful. It, they, I, I they thought that was an incredibly yeah. good point. Yeah, they do turn up a lion at one point in Biddeford. That they a lion gets factored into all this. Now that certainly is a bit terrifying and a, and a wilder imagination. But I think the actual point is that they they mirror what is thought about the actions of the witch. That the the Biddeford cases swing around the idea of hearth and home. The women who are afflicted and the families who are afflicted by witchcraft are predated on. It's thought by the witches. The witches are always trying to gain entry. They're always trying to get into the home. They're always trying to get in through points of weakness, through the windows, down the chimney, through keyholes. These are all the classic ways that a witch gets into a house. Now, little animals can do that very effectively as well. And I think that's where the analogy kind of works, that the magpie that goes after well, that eats flesh, but goes after shiny objects. It's a thief that's treacherous, that's meat-eating. We don't tend to think that often of birds as being meat-eaters. You know, they're after the carrion, the detritus, the flea or the mouse that can get through a crack in the wall. These all become intrusive and unpleasant. The, the arrival of the cat on the bed, it's, it's not quite right. It's not where it's supposed to be. And this, I think, is what is terrifying in the context of Biddeford. It's people who feel that they're under siege from something. And in a very oppressive, very frightening way for them. And it's no wonder that we find in old houses still across Britain, which bottles, ideas of protection, which balls at the, at the window to reflect and to cast back the gaze, all these methods of counter magic. Biddeford wasn't quite so adept at that. And that, I think, again, is, is one of the problems that we have, that there seems to be no way of stopping this or stopping ill wishing other than going to law for some kind of redress. Wasn't there also a rise in the belief that, you know, even counter magic shouldn't be done since all magic is a way of, you know, working with the devil? Yeah. Counter, well, you can, you know, you can practice counter magic and it can be seen as a form of witchcraft. You're dead right. There, there are attempts in Biddeford to do it through scratching the witches by mm, the mob. Yeah. There's the, the idea that once you draw blood from a witch that symbiotic link between the witch and her victim to do harm is broken and that the, the victim is freed. They try that and it doesn't work because the victim is too poorly actually to effectively scratch the witch, even when she's supposed witch, when she's brought before her. So yes, there is that. I think there's also the fact that in Biddeford, the authorities are scared that it's gonna get out of control. Witch finders are brought in. We don't know a lot about them, but they certainly turn up. The Reverend Han, I think, in his own head, decides that he's going to slip into that uh, that model of kind of witch finder and, and take his chance and make his career. So 
the authorities, when Thomas Hill moves to get the witches out, moves to get them out of the area into Exeter and into a courtroom, really it's a, a way of putting a lid on everything, putting a lid on the cauldron, stopping the allegations go, going further as they actually had done. So in that way, it's a rational way of keeping order. And I think you can almost maybe make the argument that the local authorities just wanted to be rid of the problem. They weren't particularly bothered if it was going to end up in a capital conviction and the women's death, but they, by the same token, weren't going to be overly worried if the women disappeared for a few weeks uh, into a dungeon and then were allowed to limp back at a kind of later date when the passions had died down. After all, that's what had happened quite successfully before in the case of Temperance Lloyd. So... It's not always the case that a witch accusation leads to a witch execution. I thought that was one of the most interesting aspects of it was just how little the accusations were ending in execution at that time. England doesn't have, with the exception of the, the Essex outbreak at the end of the Civil War, it doesn't have mass hunts in the way that continental Europe, or certainly Scotland, ever did and Scotland goes on much larger you know Glasgow is having is in the grip of a full-scale hunt in the 1690s a decade after the period we're talking about and had gone through in the early 1660s probably the largest hunt in its history even eclipsing what James the sixth and first had done and there, there are all kinds of reasons for that but as you say within an English context there are there are lots of ways in this period you can get off the charges. The easiest way, as Temperance Lloyd is able to do in 1671, is just to deny it. <laughs> the problem that the witches have when they come to trial at Exeter is that they're, and, and why they have the problem when they're brought before the, ju before the justices in Biddeford is that they earn an R and kind of agree to it and drag each other down. They literally talk their way to the gallows, which is, which is the problem, and a, and a very big problem at that. I think if you have family and friends who can speak up for you and protect you, if you can try and pivot the allegation so it's actually, and this happens in other areas in the Celtic periphery, particularly in the Isle of Man, if you can pivot the charges so you say that the person who accuses you is actually acting maliciously and bring a defamation charge against them. It's a way of totally turning everything on its head. And we see that a lot in the period from 1660 up until the end of the, the witchcraft laws in the 1730s. So it is less common. The elites, I think, are less and less believing in witchcraft. But the fact that belief is declining is what worries a certain section of Anglican, that's High Church, Church of England thought, in the Restoration period. After all, what has been brought back, what has been painstakingly recreated with the Restoration of Charles II in 1660, is a form of control, a form of not quite absolutist, but getting their monarchy. So everything stems from the king and God and the church which are all married together 
So the bishops come back in, the king comes back in, a very authoritarian way of ruling and seeing about thinking about the world comes back in. So the women preachers who'd been, you know, permitted during the decade before are all gone and in serious trouble. There are all kinds of religious clampdowns and prohibitions. And anything that challenges that is really seen as quite a quite a threatening thing. So we have people like Glanville, who wrote a couple of the big textbooks on witchcraft around about this period, who is profoundly troubled with the idea of the people he meets at the Royal Society. This is a man of wealth, of considerable education. So which theory doesn't come from the from the base upwards? Which theory trickles down? And the same is true just as happened at Biddeford. So for Glanville, he is worried that if you stop believing in witches, people will stop believing in God, that deism and atheism will creep in. Because once you give up the literal belief in the word of God, including there are such things as witches, where do you stop? So there is an attempt by the high church, the Church of England, to draw a line in the sand to keep their power and control on people's minds. And they they fight this out really in this period in the grounds of witchcraft. And the Biddeford women become collateral in this elite intellectual battle. And the judiciary has the problem that while the witchcraft laws exist, that is the law of the land. And if somebody says, I did it, you can't let them go because they've admitted to a capital offence. You're bound by the law. Now, what happens slightly later in this period is that some people begin to find ways around it, begin to find methods of actually uh, circumventing the law in a progressive manner. So they begin to prosecute uh, fakes and fraudsters rather than the poor witch. And that's the transformation, actually, that makes the, the, the law redundant in the end. It's the onus of proof. Now, the onus of proof and the problem we have that rears its ugly head in the Biddeford case when they get tried at Exeter, quite possibly, but also is the problem for Salem, is that during the time that uh, all this is happening, we have the rulings of Matthew Hale in the early 1660s at Bury St Edmunds, who admits spectral evidence, the idea that the accuser can say, as happened at Salem, there are spirits that only I can see walking around this room and that the court has got to accept it. How do you prove something you can't see, touch, hear yourself? Well, the moment Hale takes this, and again, he's one of the elites, somebody who's in line with medical practice at the time, the moment, he, the moment he accepts all that, the burden of disbelief and dis, you know, disproving these allegations becomes immense. How can you rationally conflate that charge if the accuser says, but this is how I feel, this is what I see, and you can't tell me otherwise? So... It's an incredible thing in the witch hunter's armory to actually have because it defies physical laws, as you might say that, that witchcraft does per se. It defies empiric evidence and it defies anything we today would think of as being rational.
What do you think it is that you know has captivated the modern audience so much? You know, with the idea of these women as witches. Well, I think I think modernity has had a long and a rich engagement with the witch, almost from the time that they stopped being persecuted in the courts. Village level, somewhat different, but in the sense they started stopped going to the gallows or to the bonfires for for the charge of witchcraft. Things. The witch has a dark luster that grows and grows and grows in the Western imagination. And this starts to an extent with the Enlightenment, but really with the Romantic period at the beginning of the 19th century. Gothic fiction, for instance. The the revulsion from the modern automated industrial world where everything is blunt everything is rigid, everything is supposed to work like clockwork, then a little anarchy around the fringes, a little mysticism becomes attractive, possibly. I think also it begins to grow from the women's movement. It begins to grow from the writings of a French historian, Jules Michelet, who celebrated and feminized the witch Michelet is so important because most of the things that the New Age movement today thinks about witchcraft stem from Michelet, the witch as the symbol of the people, the witch as the young, attractive, clued up woman, not the old murderous hag, the witch as wronged spirit of nature who heals and helps rather than harms. It all comes from the pages of Michelet. Take that forward, you get. Matilda Gage writing in the States and the abolitionist period about women and witchcraft, where she takes this and kind of amplifies it onto a feminist level in her engagement, wanting American women to have the vote. So we've got all of that with the first wave of feminism. The second wave of feminism in the 1960s, early 1970s goes even further, where the witch becomes the every woman the epitome, the archetype of really good stuff, doesn't need a man, is intuitive, is emotional, is in line with the burgeoning ecological movement, you know, kind to animals, in tune with nature, not shackled by the bands of science, is willful, disobedient, wild and free. So the witch goes through this enormous rehabilitation and transformation. So the centuries of hatred, of grime, of uh, every bad thing you can think to be hurled on a human being, being heaped on the bent back of the elderly witch, is stripped away in this period, and the witch becomes all mother Mm. as a total reverse, as a symptom, you know, within modern paganism, a a symbol of the of the goddess figure so it's a it's a massive transformation in terms of the western historical imagination so witches begin to turn up in books so i've got it in front of me stella benson's novel from the the post-war you know the interwar period sorry the 1920s living alone is looking at self-defining witches women who provide support for each other within a community and that utterly transforms the way that witches 
and witchcraft is thought about. It doesn't perhaps have a great deal to tell us about the lived experience of the Biddeford women, but it explains an awful lot about how the cases and tragedies have been viewed, certainly in the last 40 years or so. And it's a very important trend within cultural history, I think. Yeah, it fascinated me when you were talking about the you know, how the plaque ended up getting put up, you know, to honor them and the festivals that have taken place in their memories. Well, I think that's the rub of it. And I think with the trouble with writing about witch trials is that they can simply be grim upon grim, which is what, in essence, they were. You know, persecution is never pretty to write about. It's not a nice side of the human psyche. And we can think, and I'm sure your listeners can think of lots of occasions going on in the present where minorities or people who are simply just a little bit different are picked on and have their lives shattered, really, by that impact. But I think just to have the one-dimensional view of the witch as victim, pure and simple, doesn't get us anywhere. It doesn't lift us out of that rut, and it doesn't lift us out of that mire and I think the the very positive side of that trend in western thought from Michelet onwards to turn the witch into a positive insurgent sexually and politically free figure and free thinking figure is something that can be liberating and it's his sense of liberation that I think led Judith Noble and the women's collective in Exeter to think about honouring the women. It's what led a particular Green councillor in Biddeford to get a similar plaque raised outside the town hall. Um, it's very telling that it's the only monument to a woman in the whole of Biddeford, uh, <laughs> or a group of women. So, you know, we haven't come that far down the, down the road of liberation. Um, if we think about public art, women are, you know, let's face it, underrepresented every which way we, we kind of look. So all those arguments came to pass in the 90s. You've also got the rise at that point of modern day paganism. In, in terms of the groups that were pushing for the rehabilitation of the Biddeford women, it's very eclectic. It's women's groups, it's earth mysteries groups. It's not the earlier coven-based witchcraft that we know from say Gerald Gardner or even Alex Sanders. It's much more free flowing and it's much more politicized and activist based. It's about doing little, as they termed it, guerrilla actions, leaving mysterious bouquets at the site of the, the gallows in Exeter, all those kinds of things that made the headlines and, and uh, you know, raised media interest and got the plaque actually there. It's a great thing to go and visit. It's, um, you know, it's beautifully set in Rougemont Gardens. It's a great testament to the to the activism of the modern women. And similarly, I think, you know, I leave the book with the, the Witches Tea Party that was organised by Jackie Juno to get a, a pardon for the victims of witchcraft. And the nub of it is this, that it doesn't seem that the three Biddeford women knew anything other in their life than hard work, want, empty stomachs, the hatred of their neighbours. The fact that in the present, their lives could be celebrated by their sisters, however many generations down the line, and their sisters' children, 
with laughter, with song, with a day out, with something. And this, this is the, this is the, perhaps the good thing about the English national character. We've got lots of bad things, Maiden Empire and all that kind of stuff and flag waving that are not quite so nice. But we've got some good things going too, like tolerance and a sense of gentle playfulness. And I think the idea of having a witch's tea party where you and your kids and your sisters and your mates rock up in pointy hats dressed as witches and you have a big celebration. And in one sense, it's lighthearted and it's tongue in cheek. But on another, for those who want it, it's liberating, it's celebratory and it's even verging on the religious. You know, Jackie talks about, or talked about in the interview I did with her, of one point when they read out their names and she chants a little recitation for them, and it was a beautiful summer's day. Suddenly there was a chill in the air and everything went still and cold and the birds stopped, and everybody stopped for that moment and had goosebumps running up and down their spines. So I think the great thing about that is it can operate on all kinds of levels. It can be as playful as you want, or it can be as deep as you want, but it taps into that sense of counterculture that's been busily eating away like a little familiar spirit or a mouse on a big cord of rope for about 300 years to totally transform the reputations and the way that those women's lives were viewed and uh, retold so hopefully my little book is one more step along that road and it doesn't just end up with three poor helpless friendless women twitching their lives away at the end of a rope it gives them a bit of a voice without projecting stuff onto them and it gives a voice and a path to liberation for any of their sisters who want to follow in a, in a different path of life than maybe mainstream constraints and the nine to five of late capitalism give us. So uh, it's all the better for that, I think. I think that your little book did a wonderful job of just that. It gave them a voice that they didn't have in life and it just memorialized them for you know whomever wishes to pick up the book and remember them. I think that it's very telling that their names are the ones that we remember rather than, you know, the people who persecuted them or who were trying to make a name for themselves during that time. Well, that's a great point. It's it's a really lovely one, isn't it? It's that thing, you know, that 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 idea that, you know, sometimes you can be on the wrong side of history or the right side of history. And all those powerful men, the secretary of state, the judges, the uh, the town council in Biddeford, who might have thought with some expectation that they'd be household names, simply are not today. Nobody's heard of them out there. If you go along to Biddeford and ask somebody who Leonine Jenkins or Thomas Hill were, they'd look at you remarkably blankly. They probably have heard of Temperance Lloyd now. And that's, I think, quite quite something and it is a real dish served cold it's one i think that temperance lloyd and her sisters would have been amused at i think they'd have got that and i think they'd have probably liked it i definitely think that they would have um, is there anything else that you're working on right now that we might expect to read or to um, see you at well i'm doing some stuff on modern witchcraft i'm doing a thing for cambridge university press on gerald gardner 
as a little study guide. I'm doing a thing on Manx witchcraft with a co-author, my friend Christina Harrington. So that's going to be out imminently. Um, and that's set in the kind of modern period. And then I've got a couple more things that I'm, I'm working on for Bloomsbury that may well come to fruition. So witches of all shapes and varieties have been kind to me in my career, I have to say. It wasn't expected. It wasn't the career path I'd particularly sought for. I never thought I'd end up writing for so long in so much depth about witches, but it's in some ways a gift that keeps giving. Once you're down there, it's it's a rich, it's a rich, you can get through. Lyndall Roper has a wonderful phrase about in the, the early modern period, the 16th, 17th century, witch trials are probably the only time we hear poor women's voices amplified to any great extent. And I think witch trials do give you a way to take a snapshot of a past society and get to understand what it felt like to be totally immersed in a very, very different culture. And that's, that's the kind of joy of it. And recovering lives that are forgotten, not just the three women, but some of the other poor in the town of Biddeford that you come across and you see how some of them fell or some of them actually rose. There was a guy, John Blackamore, who may have been may have been an African, for all we know, who's on the poor rolls uh, in the 1660s. By the 1690s, he and his family have established themselves as, as thriving businessmen in Biddeford. So there's this sense of social mobility as well, that it wasn't all gloom and doom. And that little corner of England is really quite something in terms of the sense of adventure and enterprise and intellectual ferment that's that's going on behind it. So it's a it's a wonderful subject. And as I say, I've been very, very lucky, mainly because my old mentor at Durham University, Jeffrey Scar, was so decent and brilliant and searching and took the time and trouble to, you know, talk to me and bring me along that road and hothouse me a little bit. And it's been a great journey of discovery, one I'm really grateful for. Let's hope it continues. I certainly hope it does. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, like I said, it's a real pleasure. And it's a real pleasure to you know, be able to talk to you and hopefully, hopefully get your listeners thinking about new avenues in the way they think about the past and the way they think about witchcraft and contemporary religious practice. And if it does something towards that, I'll be more than happy. So it's been it's been lovely to be your guest. Thanks ever so much, Hilary. Yeah, thank you. My thanks to Hilary for conducting this interview, and especially to Dr. John Callow for taking the time to discuss the Biddeford Witches and his research into the case. The book, The Last Witches of England, is available in all good bookshops, and you can learn more about John's work and other writing on his website at www.johncallow.co.uk Links will be available in the show notes and on the episode page on the Folklore Podcast website where I'll also put some extra research information on this case for anyone interested. Thanks for listening to the Folklore Podcast. If you'd like to know more or interact with us then please do follow us on Twitter at FolklorePod or visit our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com where you can also sign up to our occasional e-newsletter. The Folklore Podcast is an independent podcast 
part of the Folklore Network, whose remit is to collect and preserve folklore for the future. We keep our content ad-free, at the request of our listeners, but do rely on your support to keep producing content. To find out how you can help, please visit the support page on our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com support, where you can find links to join our Patreon page, make a donation, or find other ways to help us without financial outlay. Patreon supporters enjoy a range of extra content from as little as a pound a month, and without them, we wouldn't be here. You can also help by reviewing our show in your podcast app, or by sharing our content on social media. Please tag us in social media posts you make about the podcast. We love to join in with your conversations. Thanks for listening. I hope you can join us again soon.